1: Welcome back to New Books in History. I'm your host, Sam Backer. I'm a PhD candidate in history at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. And I'm here today with David Minot, who published uh, a wonderful new book, Vaudeville and the Making of Modern Entertainment, 1890 to 1925. So first off, congratulations, David. Um,
0: Thank you, Sam. And it's delightful to be here with you.
1: So just... To get started, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to this project.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, actually, in a very circuitous way, um, I had started off doing some work on the blues, uh, oh gosh, about 15 years ago, I suppose. And um, it was about the same time that others were beginning to question the traditional approach that had been taken to. Uh, the origins of the blues, um, the country origins in particular. And we're beginning to look at the historical record and discover that the earliest accounts we have of the blues were in the, in the theater. Uh, and um, that led me to start working on uh, uh, Black popular theater, um as and its links to the blues uh there has been some great work done on that since i started on that work and i i did a preliminary article and then realized that other people were doing much better work than i was but i became interested in uh, vaudeville generally uh, from that work and i started doing research on that uh, probably about 12 years ago uh, or 13 years ago um and wrote my first chapter, and you will understand this as somebody in the in the process of writing. Uh, the first chapter grew bigger and bigger and bigger, and turned into a first book on pre vaudeville popular theater. Uh, and this one is very much a a, um, a second a second book on vaudeville itself and modern entertainment. So it would, it 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 really grew out of some early interest I had in in music uh and in popular music
1: oh that's that's absolutely fascinating and i I totally especially in in this period of of time um the all the entertainment forms are so linked and Mm -hmm. the histories go back in some ways so quickly almost Mm -hmm. that i i I totally understand the uh, wanting to start maybe in 1890 and realizing that to do that you needed to start in 1800 (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: That's exactly the case. And, uh, I started reading back into concert saloons, which, um, you know, as you know, have, have not been, uh, particularly well researched. Um, and what, what interests me uh, at reading the book, I'm very interested in, in the aesthetics of popular theater, um, Uh, how performers presented themselves, what the culture of the theater experience itself was. Um, And uh, I tried to understand the concert saloon in the context of the broader popular uh, theater and in the context of sentimentality in the 19th century um, as a a critique and also... uh, in some ways, a negation of the sentimental popular theater at that time. And so that, that kind of grew into a, uh, my last book, which was The Soul of Pleasure, and uh, deals with sentimentality, the popular theater, concert saloons, and the way in which entertainment was changing over the course of the 19th century. And that, it took me up very much to the 1890s. And, um, and then this book uh, uh, takes the next place. But there's not going to be a trilogy. So
1: So, for those listeners who may not have really thought about vaudeville past kind of this, um, I've always felt that it holds kind of a funny place in our collective memory. It's, uh-huh. it's the thing right before the beginning of the thing at a certain level. Yep. Like right before the Marx Brothers, right before the earliest films most people know. Is vaudeville and the kind of vaudeville aesthetics. I'm just wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit about what vaudeville was and and, and how big and and how new it, it was at the time.
0: Yeah, um, sure. It it is a it's a it's a very old vaudeville is both a type of entertainment and a way of selling that entertainment. So why don't I separate those two a little bit? The the type of entertainment itself uh, is. Is sometimes called or often called vaudeville, but it really should be called variety. Um, And it's much older, uh, dates back to the early uh, 19th century in the United States. Um, And it is a form of entertainment in which different actors uh, perform short acts, um, which are isolated from each other. So there's no continuity, there's no storyline. Uh, they're not sequential in any logical format, uh, even though the people who p- put on those acts uh, try and organize them in a way to create excitement over the course of the evening of entertainment. So vaudeville as a, as a type of entertainment, meaning the variety show, is, is very old and it's still around today. And so vaudeville as a organizational form had a relatively brief history in the longer history of variety entertainment. It was a a way of delivering variety entertainment that existed for, I mean, in its heyday, which is the period I'm covering, probably about 25 or 30 years. Uh, Vaudeville itself, uh, as a form of delivering variety entertainment, was a network of theaters that, uh, existed across the United States and, and Canada. Um, there were at its peak probably 1,600, 1,500 to 2,000 uh, vaudeville theaters. Um, there were maybe twenty to 30,000 vaudeville performers who traveled from one theater to another at any one time. Um, and about 5 million Americans attended weekly uh, to... Uh, see uh, an evening of vaudeville entertainment. And so it was uh, an organizational form that depended on uh, the movement of the performer from theater to theater. So in a sense, it's, it, it, it is bound by the earlier technology. Um, Film moves the product, right? Um, Right. in a different sort of way, you can, you can ship it from place to place. In a, in a pre-film era, you have to move the performers. So you can't have synchronous performance. You can't have the same actor performing in two different places at the same time, whereas you could have a film screened in thousands of different places in the same minute. But the principle was the same, that you would have performers moving around from theater to theater across the country And because um, the theaters themselves were trying to secure performers and there was competition for the best performers, theaters found that by grouping together into networks or or chains of theaters, they could move performers through through the links in the chain. Uh, And that would guarantee the performers a certain number of weeks of performance so you would you would measure your contract by the number of weeks you had Um, short jumps were preferred to long jumps so that uh the shorter your travel between theaters if you could perform in different theaters on different nights uh that was preferable because your income was was more steady Um, and that then led to the creation of this kind of distribution network and that distribution network becomes the basis of of film distribution so that uh, Fox theaters, for example, were were vaudeville theaters that convert over to um, uh, film theaters. Um, and uh, so many of the early vaudeville theaters then become chains of of film theaters. So I think that's what its distinctive features are. I think the dis- the, the most distinctive feature of it was the was the distribution system because that distribution system was very new. Um, the idea of having uh, regional and then national chains of theaters that would move performers uh, through them uh, meant that people in widely disparate parts of the United States could see the same things on different nights. And so, for many historians, before I started working on this, um, it was it was part of the creation of a of a national entertainment culture because. Uh, people in in New York or Duluth would actually see the same actors on different nights, different weeks, but um, they'd see the same people, hear the same music, uh, listen to the same jokes, and so you are you are creating a national entertainment culture. And vaudeville was really the first to do that.
1: And 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 my understanding is it's also groundbreaking in the expanse of its audience. I mean I'm thinking about, you know, the theatrical syndicate which is moving, quote unquote, legitimate theatrical productions um, at a national level, but those are, you know, the least a ticket is going to be is 25 cents. And wow. and one of the key innovations of vaudeville is that the least a ticket's going to be is what 10, which puts yeah. it in the reach of a far larger swath of the population.
0: Yeah, and um, you've you've hit on one of the great debates about podcasts. You know, um, you know to what extent it is a, a working class entertainment or an entertainment of the uh, of the less well off. Um, uh, I don't argue that. I argue that it appeals to a, a wide cross section of uh, Americans, and that certainly in big cities. You find vaudeville theaters in well-to-do neighborhoods and and less well-to-do neighborhoods, and that it seemed to have been able to touch people from a wide variety of economic, ethnic, uh, and racial backgrounds.
1: So the the um, the title of the book is Vaudeville and the Making of Modern Entertainment, mm-hmm. and I think one of the key arguments that you lay out here is that vaudeville and the popularity of vaudeville is intimately caught up with the kind of um, experience of an experience and exploration, maybe of a a new kind of modernity Mm -hmm. um, in the United States and Canada. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to speak in duos. Uh, today. Um, so there's, uh, t- again, kind of two aspects of this. Um, the first aspect of why I argue that it's a, it is a modern entertainment hinges on this distribution system, but also, uh, as you point out, the idea that it's cheap, but more than being inexpensive, that it is meant to be taken casually, so that you're not preparing yourself for an evening of the theater. People would go out to vaudeville and, and enter the show halfway through. They'd walk out uh, when they came to a part they didn't like. Um, they'd leave, they'd come back. Uh, it was a very casual entertainment experience. Um, and the other argument that I make about this is that it was, it was the first entertainment that I I believe was designed to help people who are exhausted from a day recharge so it was light and it was frivolous and they tended not to put on acts that would cause intense emotion um, sometimes fear but often that was uh, that was regarded uh, unfavorably my managers, if they tried to scare their audience too much. So the idea was to to keep people happy, to keep people lighthearted, to keep people entertained, and to turn entertainment into a form of, of emotional um, uh, rehabilitation uh, after a tiring day at work or uh, or in the city. And so I That's one aspect of modernity. And I think you still see that carrying through in the entertainment culture of movies and in the entertainment culture of television, uh, which both have this kind of um, uh, recharging aspect to it that we're supposed to relax when we watch these things and kind of turn our minds off. So that's one aspect of it. The other one is the content Uh, again. And the content itself is, as you say, I play with the notion of uh, modernity, that what vaudeville, and of course it's a vast entertainment, right? There's thousands and thousands of acts. So um, this is a generalization, and I have no doubt that people will find lots of acts that don't fit these models. Um, but the idea was to sell the new as better. Uh, modern life is better than than. Uh, previous forms of life so that characters who are old fashioned, whether they're uh, immigrants um, or uh, the, the, the Rube character, the the rural uh, character um, are projected in a comic negative light and vaudeville celebrates the smart, fast talking, cynical, uh, well-dressed, um, urbanite and it develops its own way of speaking, which is called Broadway slang um, and its own way of moving its own way of presenting people uh, and its own attitudes to life so that the, the great butt of vaudeville jokes, the mother-in-law becomes a kind of symbol of everything that's old fashioned and vaudeville looks forward to um uh, people overcoming the uh, the conservatism of their mothers-in-laws, and so that's very much the other aspect of this that it it sells modernity both in the the entertainment culture and in the entertainment content.
1: And no, that's a really fascinating point um, because nostalgia and sentimentality had been maybe not the dominant strand, but a major strand of American entertainment culture, certainly through the 19th century. And, and you're saying that vaudeville really pushes back against that in a, a, a distinctive and kind of almost like a um, flag-planting way. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. It, it. I mean, as we know, a lot of the content is, by our measure, deeply sentimental, but it's a different type of sentimentality if, if we think of 19th century sentimentality in terms of empathy right it's it's the christian value of being able to feel yourself in the position of the suffering other that's not the sentimentality that vaudeville presents um, uh, vaudeville sentimentality is more of the 20th century cloying type rather than um, that notion that it's a positive value to be able to experience the suffering of others because it makes you a better Christian so this isn't this isn't the 19th century world this is very much a, a 20th century form of um, of the sentimental um, and uh, sentimentality has a has a fascinating history I mean we tend to think of it as as one thing but it's evolved a great deal since the 18th century.
1: So, kind of picking about the idea of of a twentieth of century way of, of being, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. the other another thing uh, that kind of comes out of that is, that you talk about is um, Vaudeville's relationship to ideas of personality, and in particular the um, development of a, of a specific type of stardom yeah. um, related to those ideas of personality. That um, even though it's happening just before film really lays the foundation and is one of the first places where you can see uh, a certain type of stardom and a certain type of celebrity culture that becomes just incredibly influential in American life going forward. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I think, as you say, vaudeville uh, presages that. Um, and it, it is a, it, it's a simpler, more, personal form. It certainly doesn't have the same blitz that surrounds the studio system. Um, but vaudeville entertainers uh advertise products uh they they their faces appear on cigarette cartons and cosmetics uh they they sell clothing uh they will draw attention to the makers of the clothes they wear uh, they give interviews before shows, talking about um, their clothes, talking about the, the cosmetics they use, talking uh, about the exercise and fitness routines that they engage in, the food that they eat. Um, and early on, until uh, 1905, uh, you could actually have advertising featured on the stage, so that you could you could have products. Um, uh, product advertising directly as part of your act. And the managers, the vaudeville managers get away, you know, um, move stars away from that. But um, so their they've they've brand identification, you see this also with um, sheet music, which is a huge industry. Uh, increasingly in the 1890s, as vaudeville becomes uh, bigger, uh, the faces of the performers are now featured on the cover of the sheet music. So that, too, is a kind of branding and a marketing of the uh, performer. Um, so it, it does uh, start this process of identifying um, stars with uh, a rich lifestyle. And they also do an awful lot to promote themselves. And in the book, I'm, I'm skeptical about the truth of these things but the performers always present themselves as having a rags to riches lifestyle that they, they started out just as humble folk um, who are now earning fabulous salaries and are, are nationally or internationally famous. So um, that too is part of the, the modernizing democratizing influence of vaudeville, this notion that anybody could make it, that you too, if you have talent or you have personality or if you have chutzpah, you can be a star and you can make a fortune. Um, and that's part of the, the culture of the, um, uh, of the theater itself. Um, and they do become models, role models for behavior in a way that, uh, you know, the, the actors of the sentimental theater don't. I, I don't think people looked at Edwin Booth and thought, you know, I want to act like Booth, but you would see a vaudeville performer and think, I'm going to dress like that person. I'm going to use their cosmetics. I'm going to follow their exercise routine. I'm going to read about them in fan magazines. It is on a much smaller scale than than, uh, film, which in part because the studios take on the marketing of these people in ways that vaudeville theaters never... Manage to effectively market uh the people who work for them but it's the start it's the start of the process um, and as you know for historians always one of our difficulties is is when you're dealing with these continuums it's always a case of where do you start and how do you rank this as more important or less important bigger or less big whatever it might be with the things that went before it and after it right um, so it's it's not on a scale with film but it's on a scale.
1: In one of my favorite footnotes, Stuart Blumen in the making of his book about the making of the middle class uh, coins something yeah. called Blumen's rule, which is it happened in my period. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> um, so, but but in addition, I mean, you write about to, to this kind of broader structure around stardom on the vaudeville stage. You also write really compellingly about the ways in which in some ways the the performance dynamics and the underlying aesthetics that have occurred very much on the vaudeville stage also kind of complemented uh, that that emergence of celebrity and stardom. this idea that unlike let's say uh, Edwin Booth for instance the the great uh, late 19th century actor who is himself a public personality but is not playing Edwin Booth exactly on stage stage that the vaudeville stars are presenting themselves doing things on stage that uh, you write that it's both entirely authentic and entirely artificial and that what they're doing is artificial but they are being authentically themselves doing these artificial things and that that seems to mark a real change in the relationship in understanding conceptualizations of identity maybe on the stage and in, in, in a performance culture.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think so. The, it is, it is a, a theater of authenticity. People perform uh, their performers, right? I, I don't think we should forget that. And they, um, they come on stage performing a role and uh, they do it more or less effectively. But the pretense of performance is that they're not performing, that somehow they are just ordinary people who have a great voice um, or uh, a particular skill. Um, And they draw attention to themselves as people rather than to the work that they're performing so that – while it's true that the the song may become a hit and and people will take up performing it, part of the goal is to have that song identified with a particular performer or a particular style of performance to draw attention to the person. Um, and I I trace and I I know I'm wandering into ground that's probably beyond me here, but I trace a kind of change in the nature of popular song to an increasing attention to. Uh, making them personal. um, 19th century sentimental song is often telling stories, uh, whereas 20th century popular song is about what happened to you, your experience of love, um, your hardships, your heartbreak. Uh, And it's it's about the singer and the identification of singer and song. And that is part of a vaudeville characteristic of drawing attention to the to the individual who is on stage playing themselves. Um, so it is totally artificial, right? You're you're coming out on stage, you're, you're being announced on a board that you're coming out at, at 10 after eight, you're on stage for 15 minutes and then you leave and somebody else comes out after you. So it's a very artificial environment. It's hard when watching that not to be aware of the theater itself, Um particularly in a place where the house lights are kept dim, but not off where people are getting up and moving around during the show or talking during the show. Um, so you're always aware you would be, if you are in a vaudeville theater of the environment, the, the theatrical environment. Um, but the, the trick for the performer is to create that bond between themselves and the audience where uh, the audience member sees their personality um, as the thing that is attracting attention, um, rather than necessarily the content of what they're what they're doing. Um, and that is that is, to my mind, new. And it's uh, very much there in in film with the big stars and how they they develop it. Uh, though vaudeville is different in some ways that 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 direct appeal to the audience, the habit of talking to the audience which is also part of naturalizing the vaudeville environment. Um, of course, it doesn't work in film. I mean, the, the Marx Brothers try it or, you know, sometimes there's an aside where, where the actor will address um, the audience in a movie, but it, it's not terribly common, whereas it was very common in the vaudeville theater as part of creating this, this natural environment in which you felt you were just looking at ordinary people being themselves. I think you see it very clearly in magic. Um, and it's one of the things that interested me a great deal in, in the book. And I, I, the section I have on magic is quite brief. Um, I would have wished it to be longer, uh, but it, it's there. And, you know, and part of this is is the magician of the of the nineteenth century is somebody who has connections to the other world. There's something mystical and magical about what a magician does. Whereas the vaudeville magician is somebody of great skill. There's somebody who's dexterous. There's somebody who has card tricks or who knows how to do things that you could learn yourself, right? That it's, it's not that somehow they've sold their soul to the devil and they now have these mystical powers. They're just an extremely talented person who has learned how to do magic. Um, And it even becomes a practice in some vaudeville acts for the magicians to show the audience how they did it. Um, And that, that I think captures this notion of of the ordinary person on stage or the the person playing themselves on stage.
1: And one of the things I think that um, you argue that that I find particularly interesting is in some ways that that double relationship, um, that it's both people representing themselves as ordinary people on stage and also being the products of in some ways the cutting edge of modern show business is one of the things that make, that makes vaudeville so influential, um, on people's daily lives that, um, that they're kind of pitching themselves as a reflection of the audience to a certain extent, but actually they're, um, demonstrating a a set of, of new ways of being to that audience.
0: Yes, that's right. And um, you see this in the, a lot in the off, off stage, often potted interviews that, that are made with performers. They're always trying to naturalize themselves and become as ordinary as they can. So they'll, they'll, they'll give their pot roast recipes, right? Um, they'll talk about what they like to do on a rainy Sunday. Uh, their favorite books to read, um, photos are taken of their living rooms. There is a, there's this effort to make them ordinary. And yet it's all about selling their celebrity. Um, and that's why it, it it is a kind of democratization of uh, celebrity in that sense. And the early, the, the kind of, Pre-studio Hollywood does this too, right? Um, but as you get in more into the studio era, it becomes more about creating a glamour around the artists that isolates them from uh, ordinary people. Uh, they still become, of course, figures of emulation, but there's, there's more of a sense of, of turning them into larger-than-life figures Whereas vaudeville, they don't want to be larger than life. They want to be richer than anybody else. Um, and they want to show their, their taste and their uh, fondness for um, modern clothing, modern food, travel, fast cars, uh, big houses. But they still want to be ordinary, right? They still want to talk about their kids and, and how much they enjoy going to the countryside and picking apples. So it is, it is a, it is a kind of pre 20th century celebrity, but post 19th century start.
1: Yeah. So j- just to kind of situate this um, a little bit in, in, in this point in, in some of the historiography of, of vaudeville, one of the things mm-hmm. I think that that's really interesting about, about what you're saying here is um, I feel like uh, in it, the existing writing about vaudeville there's been a real focus on respectability or non-respectability that's been kind of like a dominant um term that's kind of shaped the scholarship um and one would have you some of those uh some of those like uh, i'm just like anyone else stories is kind of like a you know a, a pushing back against lingering theatrical prejudice um and I was just fascinated to see this entire other explanation for it. Um, that that's so convincing.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm glad you found it convincing. That <laughs> thanks for that. That's um, it, it. It is a it is a, a somewhat novel argument um, in terms that it does run against uh, some of what it does. I don't I don't think it runs against uh, the full gamut of what people have said about. Uh, vaudeville I think there's been a recognition of its place uh, in modern entertainment Um, but I think I think there has been a lot of uh, attention placed on the connection to the audience and vaudeville as a reflection um, of its audience the older literature holding that it's a kind of direct reflection so that uh, it's an opportunity for Im- immigrant Americans to see themselves on stage um, and gain a sense of acceptance into the, into the society um, uh, by seeing themselves acted out. Uh, and in the newer literature, it almost becomes a safe space for dissent, uh, the theater as a as a form of protest, where people could explore uh, their class or their gender ambiguities um, and challenge uh, the existing order. So both of those interpretations are are certainly valid. They just look at different aspects of it. The ones I do, um, and I think I think probably. The young historian of the future, perhaps yourself, Sam, will uh, will find a way of bringing all this together and giving us a, a kind of synoptic overview of the whole thing, so that we can put these various aspects together. Um, because I don't think they are mutually exclusive. I think I think we can see vaudeville as a modern entertainment. We can talk about stardom. Um, but we can also talk about the other aspects the, of what Vaudeville achieved and did.
1: So, at the risk of adding another level of complexity to all of this, yeah. um, but very much to, to kind of continue the thread of Vaudeville's modernity, um, I thought one of the most mm. exciting interventions you made here—something um, that's been hinted at in, in, in other books on the subject—but um, often kind of in the the peripheral vision. Um, which is vaudeville's relationship to ragtime um, and your yeah. kind of discussion of a, of a broader culture of ragtime that really uh, goes far beyond the, the handful of pianists who are typically uh, discussed um, in that framework. So I'm just wondering if you could talk about a little bit about ragtime and how you see it relating to vaudeville.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you're more of an expert on this than I am. I I suspect. So please um, uh, intercede and, and correct me if I wander off too much from, from the right path. Um, I argue that, well, first I think ragtime is neglected. Uh, I think we'd all agree on that. It was the, it was the major form of popular music in between the waltz and, 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 Victorian sentimental song, uh, parlor song, and uh, jazz. So it, it stands at a, an important moment of transition, the turn of the century. Um, it itself is not well understood in terms of what ragtime is. Uh, it's, it certainly is a, a more rhythmic uh, music. Uh, the people who write it have a lot of trouble describing it. I mean, toe tapping uh, is the kind of way that they think about it. Uh, danceable, um, something that is freer and invites more audience engagement. Those are all the types of terms that are used. Um, but uh, with a with a minimum of improvisation. Um, and something that may have been or probably was uh, African-American in origin, but very clearly becomes dominated by white uh, musicians and composers uh, and becomes very much a, a kind of um, appropriated musical form and one that is developed um, uh, by, by white Americans uh, as opposed to African-Americans. And here, here it stands in contrast to jazz. Um, so it is, it's central not just because of chronological proximity, but because ragtime, I argue, becomes popular and becomes America's national music because of vaudeville because of its inherent characteristics of being a kind of easy listening music, one that brings about audience engagement, one that allows for body movement on stage because of its, its dancing characteristics, um, one that, that uh, puts the performer to the forefront. Um, all of those things lend themselves naturally to vaudeville, and it's the reason that ragtime becomes the sound of vaudeville. And because it's the sound of vaudeville, I argue the sound of America um, during this, uh, this period. And, and, you know, you've done work on Irving Berlin and other great composers who perfect the form. Um, so it is a, uh, uh, it is a, a lively um, and mobilizing in terms of culting, cultural terms uh, form of musical expression. Um, and it dies as, as vaudeville dies. Uh, so the, the chronology of the two are closely are closely linked. Um, and I think it has suffered the same neglect that vaudeville has suffered itself. That people have tended to just see ragtime as the in-between music, in-between America's um, great contribution to 20th century popular music and jazz, um, uh, and kind of a precursor of jazz without much... Uh, credibility in and of itself and you're also right that the tradition in ragtime is to link its origins not to the theater but to uh, the piano uh, and to uh, individual composers uh, of piano music uh, whereas I I locate it um, very clearly in the theater and as vocal music um, and Finally, we tend to think of vaudeville in terms of the comics, but it's the singers who overwhelmingly dominate the form. Uh, Most of the, or a a very high percentage of the acts in vaudeville are, are singing acts or singing and dancing acts. So that really is vaudeville's most characteristic type of music. And I think the reason for its popularity, because it's the place, it's the only place, that you can go to hear live music sung. So if you want to hear in the in the pre-record days, if you want to hear a
1: song, uh, you go to vaudeville. So uh, one of the, the complexities I think of Ragtime and its relationship to vaudeville is that, like you said, it's a African-American derived set of musical practices that continue to be understood as black music, but that quickly expands far beyond that community and is, uh, popularized and, and, um, commercialized and, and much of the profits go outside of that community. And, and so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about, um, kind of, uh, the connection between, I guess, uh, Ragtime's use of of like racial modernity and and vaudeville's modernity, that that some of the appeal of this seems to be of Ragtime seems to be that it's understood as black music and that it allows vaudeville performers and and maybe vaudeville audiences to um, engage in a different kind of experience.
0: Yeah, this is probably the most complex area Um, and uh, I don't, I have to admit, I don't know if I got it right. Um, the The issue of its associations with blackness are, are clear, um, though they probably become less clear over time as ragtime comes to increasingly be associated with uh, uh, white performers. But certainly in the earliest period and in its earliest manifestations, um, there is the often the employment of of African American dialect or stage dialect. It's not, nobody speaks that way, but what what is associated on the stage with African American speech? There is some use of blackface, though not ubiquitous, uh, in ragtime performance. Um, so there is an association with blackness, and that what I struggle with and. I, I don't know if one should admit to these things in these podcasts, um, but I still struggle with it, right? I, I don't think I've got the final word on this. I, I'm reaching towards something and I don't know if if I fully landed it. But the issue for me is the that combination of naturalization of performance. So the identification with the performer and the use of racial masking and how do those two coincide and work together? How can you be at once performing yourself and adopting a racial stereotype? Um, and we, we see this, you know, and we see it in, in jazz as well, uh, the use of a racialized symbolism or racialized code uh, among white performers which associates them with uh, African-Americans without them wearing blackface. Um, and uh, part of what I argue is that this is, this is a somewhat pernicious thing um, because these symbols, which are often stage symbols, of a racial identity, are being adopted by white people and then naturalized, made part of their own performance behavior. So it will be talking jive or or using some form of body movement that is associated with African Americans and then blurring that association so that it becomes um, implicit implicit for the audience and also implicit for the performer. And to what extent does that play a role in naturalizing racial stereotype of perpetuating stereotypes that in the 19th century were more overtly connected to the absurdity of blackface? When you take the blackface off, but do the same thing, that seems to me an even more pernicious thing because you're you are making the racial characteristics that you have as you have defined them, uh, authentic and natural. Um, and that's kind of what I grapple with. And I don't even know if I expressed it well in the book itself. It was what was troubling me about all of this. Um, and the way in which those stereotypes were being used to bring out the personality and the identity of the performer more sharply. Um, so you see this with, I mean, when listeners will recognize Al Jolson, right? Nobody would take Al Jolson as black. Uh, his black face is so transparently painted on, and his singing is so clearly. Um, that of a a New York Jewish person, right? Um, And he sings songs associated with his Jewishness in blackface. And so in a sense, as others have talked about, Jolson, this, this effort to use the blackface to enhance your own personality and your own ethnic identification with the group that you truly belong to uh, is another aspect of this that is, is, is troubling because I think it does, it does serve to perpetuate the tradition of the use of racial stereotype um, in order to self-express. Uh, and we see that still today uh, in youth cultures. And also the youth uh, of the the um the naturalization or normalization of these stereotypes, and that troubles me <laughs> uh, as a as a person of i hope good faith um, uh, and um I grapple with it in the in the text is that i am I getting that across as clearly as I hope I am?
1: Yeah, no, that was great um no, and really, and really, and really fascinating.
0: Yeah, it is. It's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting reflection to have. Um, and, you know, you, you, you think about it with the songwriters and the ethnic songwriters and their, their manipulation of, of, of black or Italian um, stereotypical forms uh, in order to, more effectively present values or ideas that come from themselves. So you're not you're not playing at being Jewish anymore. Now you are using um blackness to enhance Jewishness, or you're using uh, uh, a German identity to uh, better enhance something American, right? And it's it's that layering that's so complicated that unpacking it is 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 hard. So
1: clearly, vaudeville is not still around. <laughs> um, right. Var- Variety right. is, and and arguably TikTok is vaudeville. Um, but that's a different story yep. <laughs> for another day. I think vaudeville uh ends by the mid 1920s and as you kind of describe the its heyday is actually for for a form that is so large and so influential its, its heyday is really remarkably short and you kind of close the book by pointing to uh the kind of industry forces and cultural forces that that Result in, in vaudeville's terminal and sudden decline. Um, I was wondering if you could just uh, mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yep, sure. I mean, you know, it's, a, it, it's not absolutely true, of course, because vaudeville continues into the 1940s and there are still vaudeville performers who are performing in, in theaters. Um, But vaudeville in the classic sense of an evening of entertainment that is devoted to live acts that are presented sequentially in chains of theaters uh, using a a particular form of distribution that disappears by the, by the mid 1920s. And what you increasingly have are, are individual performers who are alternated with uh, films. Um, And uh, they are in the silent film era, largely used to break up the the monotony, I would take it of silent film that you even though I don't find silent films monotonous. I love silent films, but um you know, I know what I mean you you have speaking, you have singing, you have some comedy in between the films. Um, and so that does that does uh, survive, but that's what really supplants classic vaudeville by the mid. Um, 1920s. The The reasons for its collapse are, are complicated. I think for any industry that is at the top of its game, remaining there is going to be hard, uh, particularly as competition increases. And what you see over the course of the early 19, 1920s is increasing competition, not only from cinema, uh, but from nightclubs, uh, dancing, uh, speakeasies uh, in the in the uh, era of prohibition, um, the review, uh, the the growth of the musical theater and the traveling musical theater, and all of this cuts into vaudeville's um, market. And vaudeville had always operated on relatively slender margins, so the the profits had been made out of volume, and as the volume of customers decrease, um, the owners of vaudeville theaters attempt to counter that by reducing the number of theaters and making them larger and larger so that uh, these huge, what will become the movie palaces of the 1930s, start out as, as vaudeville theaters. And they're extremely large, extremely opulent theaters that are replacing the neighborhood theater with centralized ones. They make that investment in the era, era around World War One, in the years after World War One, and it, it proves a very bad time to make investments because there's a, a market contraction in the Depression in the early 1920s, which um, uh, moves a lot of the vaudeville companies that are trying to make this transition uh, into insolvency. So it's it, some of it is that. Some of it comes from uh, the business climate of the time, the increasing competition for entertainment. Um, And the other part, I think, comes from the conservatism of vaudeville itself. It's reliance on a stable of stars who become increasingly entrenched. um, And the industry finds it very hard to draw new talent. New talent is going off into nightclubs. New talent is going off into the movies and isn't really interested, as interested in a career where every night they're performing in a different city or, or maybe three nights in one place and then they have to take the train to the next place. Um, that is much less appealing than, than performing in a, in a, in a nightclub or a cabaret, uh, where you can stay put, uh, or going to Hollywood and performing in a movie so that the, they find it difficult to draw talent. Um, as the market contracts, they find it more difficult to pay the kind of competitive salaries for big name talent that would draw people. And they become increasingly reliant on older stars um, who have a cachet, of course, with with long term vaudeville theater goers, but who maybe appeal less to the younger audiences that are that are uh, emerging in the post-war years. So it starts looking old and it starts looking stale, and that's a bad place to be if you want to be a cutting-edge entertainment. Um, So there are both internal reasons in terms of the types of stuff that Vaudeville is featuring, and also uh, economic and business reasons why it doesn't survive. But as I point out, you know, a lot of the literature seems to think that this is just an inevitable thing. Um, and that vaudeville is just going to decline as movies take over because movies are so much uh, less expensive. Um, it's a, a cheaper product to put on um, and uh, more pervasive than a vaudeville theaters could ever be. But it's not. Vaudeville bounces around, and uh, 1919 is probably vaudeville's most profitable year. And that's a year when the film industry is is growing massively so it's not necessarily the case that film alone kills vaudeville there are a bunch of factors that contribute to its demise
1: well i mean i think like i said i think this is a really fantastic book that does so much to kind of take this form and really um place it in in the center of, of a lot of the the complex dynamics of of America and in, in um, the Progressive era at the turn of the century. Um, and I really want to thank you uh, thank you for your time.
0: Well thank you Sam it's it's really good to talk to you and to meet you and i I really look forward to reading your work. I think it's going to be groundbreaking uh, and it is going to move us to a whole new level of interpretation so Um, From one vaudevillian to another, uh, thank you for uh, this interview and thank you for the work that you're doing.
1: Thank you so much.